America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Sebastian Younger's observations about war, society, and freedom. Younger is a journalist, war correspondent, and best-selling author of six books, The Perfect Storm, Fire, A Death in Belmont, War, Tribe, and Freedom. Mr. Younger has received the National Magazine Award and a Peabody Award. His debut documentary film, Restrepo, was nominated for an Academy Award. He is the founder and director of Vets Town Hall, which hosts events at which veterans share their experiences serving their country. Today's conversation focuses on what we might learn and apply from three of Mr. Younger's books. In War, Mr. Younger sheds light on the enduring human, psychological, physiological, emotional, and social dimensions of combat. The stories captured in War portray a complex picture of combat that helps civilians to better understand the experiences of those who fight on their behalf. Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging combines research with Mr. Younger's personal experience to explore how Western societies have lost and can regain a sense of belonging. The stories in Tribe reveal the importance of shared responsibility and communal values in society. Mr. Younger's memoir, Freedom, reflects on his travels along the railroad lines of the East Coast of the United States. The reflections in Freedom explore the tension between community and freedom. We welcome Sebastian Younger to discuss the necessity of unity, the importance of the tribe, and the future of American democracy. Sebastian Younger, welcome to Battlegrounds. Great, great to have you here. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, well, there's so much to talk about. I mean, your body of work is just phenomenal. But I, I thought maybe we could begin with your personal story. What drew you to write what you do write? And, you know, I was a big fan of Perfect Storm when it came out, read it right away, uh, recommended it to all my friends. But then, of course, when you read War as a professional soldier, I was really struck by your insights into the nature of combat, the nature of soldiers' experience, soldiers' humanity. So. Why, what, what drew you to writing about danger and trauma and how people have to overcome uh, the physical, uh, natural challenges like a perfect storm or man-made challenges like combat? My father grew up in Europe. He was a refugee uh, from two wars. Um, his father was Jewish. They, they were in Spain when the fascists came in in 36. They fled. And then he was in France when the Nazis came in. They came to this country. So war was something that was in my mind from my family, right? It affected my family enormously. And uh, you know, I grew up in comfortable circumstances. I went to college. I majored in anthropology. Uh, I, wrote a th I was a pretty good distance runner in college. And I wrote a thesis on Navajo, Navajo long-distance running. Right. I lived on the res for a while. I trained with their best guys. And the act of researching and writing my thesis was just incredibly exciting to me, right? I mean, I was a sort of mediocre student. I came alive when I was doing this thesis. And um, after I graduated, I did construction for a while and whatever. I was a kind of lost young man. But, but I just always thought, you know, maybe journalism is pretty close to what I did with that. Maybe I'll get into journalism. Right. And um, I was a climber for tree companies for a while. I cut my leg pretty badly. I was recovering from that. And this huge storm hit the town of Gloucester, Massachusetts, right. where I was living. Right. And, uh, and a local boat was lost offshore. I thought, maybe I'll write about dangerous jobs. Yeah. And... Uh, one of the dangerous jobs I was interested in was war reporting. And um, there was a civil war in Bosnia in 1993. Mm. Terrible civil war. It's a miniature version of, Absolutely. of Ukraine right now. It's yeah. a scaled-down version of what's going right. on with Ukraine and Russia. And so I went to Sarajevo, which was totally besieged, mm. and spent about six months in total over there learning how to be a war reporter. And then eventually, you know, I never... I grew up during Vietnam, right, and family of pacifists. Like, I never... 
I never, a few people thought America would be involved in another ground war somewhere, right? right. Like it just like, why would- Oh yeah, the 90s, right? I mean, right. you know, great power competition was over. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, right. maybe a nuclear exchange with Russia, but other, other than that, like it's not happening. Why would we, boom, all of a sudden, 9-11. Uh, and you know, Afghanistan was a country I was already very familiar with. I'd been there in 96 when the Taliban were taking over. I was there in 2000. I was with Ahmed Shah Massoud as his forces yeah. outnumbered. Uh, fought the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in the north in Barakshan, mm -hmm. and that he was assassinated right before 9-11. I rushed back over there, and I was with the Northern Alliance when they took Kabul with our mm -hmm. U.S. support, obviously. Uh, and then I watched as the war sort of didn't go as, as it might have, right? And eventually I thought, my God, here's a chance to do something I never thought I'd be called to do, which right. is to understand the experience of American soldiers in ground combat yeah. in a country like Afghanistan. Crazy, right? I mean, it right. just never occurred to me. And, and so I, I was embedded and you know, I just was, I, my mind was just, just sort of blown by the, the quality of the soldiers, right? I mean, yeah. just the, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up during Vietnam and the, the military really got a little bruised, its reputation got a little bruised after right. Vietnam, frankly, right. right? And I was just, I was like, oh my God, these are the most amazing young people, right? And yeah. um, so I did, a year off and on of, of a deployment uh, in the Korangal Valley in Eastern Afghanistan. And, you know, it was a rough year for everybody. And so that, you know, and it was the most, me you know, and with this, it was, I think, the most meaningful, in human terms, the most meaningful assignment of my career, right? I mean, just the belonging to that group, um, the experiences we had, the connection I felt with them, yeah. um, totally changed my life. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, there's some, so many things to talk about to pick up on that. This is a great book, War, which I reviewed for Survival Magazine when it came out. Because I, I thought you really got it. You understood the warrior ethos. You understood how soldiers overcome, you know, yeah. fear. Uh, how they overcome fear through confidence and trust in one another. And, and in common purpose, but really affection. And how a, a military unit takes on the quality of a family. Yeah. And, and how soldiers are bound together also by the sense of honor, right? Where they, you, know, you don't want to let the, the soldier next to you down and you're willing to give everything, including your own lives, for, for, for the man or woman next to you. And could you maybe talk a little bit more about what you see as the common misperceptions? Because, you know, Sebastian, I think popular culture cheapens and coarsens what I call the warrior ethos, what many people call the warrior ethos, that covenant, right, yeah. that, 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 that bonds soldiers to one another and to the society in whose name they fight. But... Yeah. But what, what do Americans who haven't served, yeah. what don't they see about the nature of, of our armed forces today and the experience of our soldiers, the, the, the rewards of service and so forth? So, you know, my, my misperception, right, was coming out of Vietnam and, um, you know, with a sort of, you know, 10, 15 years of a sort of peace to basically peacetime army, uh, a sort of very much in the background, right? My great misperception was that soldiers were just sort of like well-trained robots, right? Yeah. And the military had sort of figured out- Automatons, how, right? Yeah, like, exactly, yeah, yeah, right. Figured out how to program them so that they will like march into machine gun fire and do this and do that. And there, there was actually like a, a um, sort of loss of, of human autonomy in, within the soldier. That's what made them good soldiers. They would just follow orders blindly and blah, blah, blah. Right. Obviously not true. So when I so when I got over there, what I what I was what I realized, having been trained in anthropology, was that the 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 motivating energy of soldiers in combat was the bonds with each other. I realized that I was looking at a kind of primordial human experience, right? A platoon, mm -hmm. 30, 40, 50 people, that's the size of a typical human survival group for the last hundred thousand years, right? right? Right. And it's just the right amount of number to have sufficient force, but maintain personal connections between everybody. It's sort of the sweet spot mm -hmm. of, a, of group size, a platoon is, right? right? And I realized, oh, these guys, they're loyal to each other because all their survival depends on it. And that there's a, what grows in a, in a group like that is a kind of moral virtue of not thinking about yourself, thinking about everyone else, right? And and that's adaptive. By adaptive, I mean that your survival is augmented right. by that behavior. Um, humans on their own are virtually defenseless. We don't have claws, we don't have sharp teeth. We can't run very fast, we can't climb trees worth a dam, right? We're, we're like children in the wilderness, right? In a group, we are invincible. 
Right. And what that means is that if you're part of a group, you have to make the group more important to you than you are to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so I think what the, the, the public doesn't understand is that the that the ethos in a group of soldiers, particularly in combat, but really even in a support unit, uh, is that the uh, the self disappears not because it was just drummed out of the soldier by the military, mm-hmm. by their training, but because that is what humans do in groups when the chips are down. It's right. a deeply human thing rather than a dehumanizing. Abs- absolutely. You know, the review of the book, I, 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 I yeah, actually quoted, we need to rediscover the solidarity that is at the core of what it means to be human. You know, I, I think your, your findings are consistent with some other uh, military historians. You know, John Keegan in the face of battle, he looked at battle in the same geographic area across four to five centuries, you know, from the Battle of Agincourt all the way to a World War I battle. And so the book is a lot about change, you know, technological change, right. yep. uh, age of the infantry, age of the cavalry, age of the artillery. But at the end, he says, what battles have in common is human. The struggle of men and, and of course, women struggling to reconcile their instinct for self-preservation uh, with, with the achievement of some aim over which others are trying to kill them. And then he goes on to say, you know, that that battle is about solidarity and cohesion right. because battle is aimed at the disintegration of human groups. Right. So I'd like to talk with you about, about that, you know, that cohesion, right? what you witnessed at, at Restrepo, at the, at the combat outpost in the Congo Valley, and, and how you view from an anthropological perspective as well. Yeah. You know, uh, that that platoon, and we'll get to, to the book tribe, but, but what becomes a tribe. And, and is a, an organization uh, that is committed to one another, and as you said, willingness to sacrifice uh, for the good of the of the team. One of the very interesting things about humans is that um, we're the only species, the only mammal, where individuals are willing to sacrifice their lives for a same-sex peer. Yeah. Uh, plenty of animals will sacrifice their lives for their young, mm-hmm. right? Um, sometimes even a mate, but for a same-sex peer, for me to throw myself on a hand grenade to protect your life, yeah. you're someone I'm not even related to. Right. Maybe I met you three months ago right. in basic training, right? Yeah. That's entirely human, and it's not because soldiers have been sort of like brainwashed and, 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 and reprogrammed by the military. That's not yeah. what it's about. Humans, I think, I think are wired to understand that if you if you're part of a group and you're not willing to sacrifice for that group, everyone's survival is in jeopardy. Absolutely. The only way to survive survives for all the individuals to be prepared to be self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. Eat less food because there's not enough food. Subject yourself to danger or even self-sacrifice right. because otherwise the group's not going to survive. And in my book Freedom, I talk about the commonalities between underdog groups yeah. that defeated a superior force, right? And one of the other amazing things about humans is that you could actually be a smaller individual or a smaller group and defeat a larger one, right? Right. The bully doesn't always win. The empire doesn't always win, thank God, or there'd be no freedom in the world, right? Right. right. But one of the things that underdog groups have in common, of uh, 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 successful underdog groups have in common, is leaders that are willing to die. Yeah. Like, um, straight up, leaders who are, are, who are willing to be self-sacrificing right. and undergo the same deprivation and the same risk yeah. as the people they're leading. And if you don't have that, um, you might win if you're part of a, large, a powerful group, but you will not win if you're, if you're an underdog group. You need leaders that are self-sacrificing. And, um, and I, think that's, I think what happens in troops in combat is that there's this incredible sort of equalizing of everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, rich, poor, right. you know, like anything, what good looking, not good, you know, whatever, all those things that sort of bedevil <laughs> us in society, right? Disappear and you're evaluated in terms of mm-hmm. your level of commitment to the welfare of others. Absolutely. Your sense of honor, you're willing to sacrifice, you know, yeah. and, 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 and really the trust that you have in one another is so important in maintaining that cohesion. Now, a lot of that we try to replicate in combat, right? Of course, we teach our leaders to share the hardships and the risks of their swords, to lead by example. And then in training, you push units to, to, the, to the breaking point, right? To, to failure oftentimes, yeah. uh, because you, you want them to recognize how much they can accomplish together, right? More, more than any individual. I mean, the Ranger course is, is all kind of built around that in, in the United States Army. But there are a lot of things you can't replicate in training, and that's the direct risk to human life. It's uh, the, the, yeah. the, uh, 
the harrowing experiences that if you're in combat long enough, you're bound, you're bound to experience, especially the serious wounding or, or, or death of, of one of the people who became part of your family yeah. you loved. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how units build these bulwarks uh, against kind of you know, the emotional strain right. and the combat trauma and how they cope with those most difficult and harrowing circumstances? Well, you know, basically all those intense feelings of combat, you have to put on hold until afterwards because they're, they're, they are too problematic in the moment. Fear, the grief, yeah. um, all, you need to be func functional. And so, you know, it's a little bit like a credit card. You're like, okay, I'm not going to pay for this now. I'm going to put it on the plastic and I'm just going to have to pay a lot more later. Yeah. We're going to add 30% to my tab, right? Yeah. And that's what happens emotionally with soldiers. And one of the big things that they have to sort of put on hold is their feelings of grief yeah. when they lose a, a, a brother and her sister. And I remember there was, um, there was a disastrous battle, uh, why not, at the end of yeah. 2008 yeah. Um, in the AO, the, the battalion AO that I was connected with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and word came back to the, to, uh, the Korangal Valley, the company commander, Dan Kearney, gathered everyone, and, and I can't remember the casualties and whatnot, but uh, it was a lot, right? Yeah, and right. it was um, devastating. They, it was a sister company, right? That we, we knew all those guys, right? right? And, and Captain Kearney gathered everyone, and he said, um, all right, I want you guys, we're gonna have a moment of, uh, moment of silence, pray if you like, um, moment of silence, for the brothers that we lost, they said, I want you guys to grieve and then I want you to get over it. And then we're going to make the enemy feel like we feel right now, right? We're going to do to them what they just did to us. And so there's this sort of alchemy where they take ra the rage and the grief yeah. of loss and they turn it into something basically utilitarian, right? Okay. We're going to convert that. It's supercharged fuel right now. And we are going to now go destroy yeah. the enemy. So that, I think that's, you know, of course is, you know, later back home, are you going to have to process, you can't grieve in one minute, right? I mean, it's what Dan Kearney told him to do is not possible. Yeah, right. You will do it the rest of your life later, but it gets you through that moment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, grief work is important uh, as a leader and, and uh, mental, psychological, emotional, and ethical preparation yeah. for combat is important. And, and you're talking about, um, Really, what what uh, many of us often say to our soldiers is, "Hey, we want to honor the memory of our fallen with our deeds as we continue the mission." But it's also important to not to let rage become yeah. the combat motivator because right. the combat motivator is the mission yeah. and fighting for each other. So, um, can you talk more about that? About what is the role that you think discipline plays, and and understanding your covenant, you know, with your 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 society and expectations, right, of of what your society expects of of our soldiers in a democracy. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the central, um, the central commandment of, of, of American forces is you, you, you do not kill civilians. You do not kill people who are not bearing arms. Like, um, if they just put their arms down, you take the prisoner, but you know, you know, it's just as you don't do it. And, yeah. and there's some very good reasons not to, first of all, you alienate the civilian population. Right. And when you do that, you know, you just increase the chance that more of your, more of your, your colleagues are going to die and that you're going to lose the war, right? Like, so it, there's a pragmatic reason for acting ethically. And often I think, um, particularly in, sometimes in conservative media, there's this idea that sort of acting, um, so the, the rules of engagement are somehow hampering the war effort. If we loosen those up, we, you know, we could sort of win, win, quote, win these wars, right? I, and, I, you know, I'm really not sure that's true. I think the rules of engagement actually but they're designed to protect civilians and keep us from alienating the civilian population. Because once you've done that, just ask the Russians in Afghanistan. Yeah. Once you've done that, yeah. you've lost the war. Absolutely, right? absolutely. You know, what we'd, we'd always have often said is one of our, our brave rifle standing orders was to overmatch the enemy, overwhelm the enemy right. in every tactical engagement. Right. Uh, but, but apply firepower with discipline and discrimination, right? right? Which goes back to Thomas Aquinas, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, in terms of uh, proportionality and discrimination. Right. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't bump up in a firefight and, and right. win because, you know, barely winning in, in battle, as you know, is an ugly proposition. You know, you don't yeah, want, that's right. You don't want right. fair fights. Yeah, decisive force right. actually reduces casualties. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, I wanted to also talk to you about uh, a little bit of, about Stoic philosophy. You know, I mean, I think there is this tendency in our society today. We're going to talk a lot more, I think, here uh, about 
how the, your experience, your observations in combat relate to some of the challenges we have, maladies maybe even in our society today. Uh, but you know, there's this, 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 uh, this you know, uh, Haidt writes about this, about safetyism, you know, and yeah. creating safe spaces for people and so forth. Uh, when in fact, um, I think in combat, you recognize that you really require a mild form of stoicism, as yeah. you mentioned, to compartmentalize it and get, and get on with the mission. Uh, what is what is your sense of, of how you know the Epictetus, you know, uh, Aristotle saying focus on what you can control, right? You know, right. and then just recognize that right. there are going to be elements outside of your control. I mean, I you know, I think sort of modern America has this um, sort of weird idea that we have that we sort of have the right to be completely comfortable at all times. We don't have to be hot. We don't have to be cold. We don't have to be tired. We don't have to be worried. Certainly not scared, right? None of the none of the things that have been part of the human experience for two hundred thousand years or whatever, wherever you start the beginning of humanity from, that somehow we should be spared all, any any form of any of those things, right? Right. And so, of course, what dis I mean, it, it does a lot of harmful things, um, in, in, including I think. Um, causing real harm to the environment because of course there's a huge carbon footprint to keep us perfectly all right. all perfectly comfortable all the time right? right but but in addition the way people get through things that are scary things that are hard that are unpleasant um is by bonding together and uniting to confront the problem and you just go look at what happened on the you know gulf coast of mississippi after hurricane katrina you know, that society came together you know it's a society with some you know some racial tension in it and all kinds of other things right Katrina hit, boom, everyone is in it together, yeah, right? Right. And restaurants were cooking up this, the, the food that was rotting in the refrigerators and feeding the people. And, you know, it was extraordinary. And the people on the coast of, on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, and I have good friends there, said that they, af afterwards, they actually missed the aftermath of Katrina. Insane. Right. Right? Londoners missed the Blitz. And so one of the, one of the things that you get with this sort of like very uh, too comfortable society that we've, created and now in, are insisting on is that we're we, we i think we at risk of becoming kind of babies so acting like children basically um we lose w words are harmful right it's be afraid of words yeah, everything yeah yeah you shouldn't you shouldn't have to experience any adverse condition whatsoever including rhetorical right right so we and and ultimately we lose each other because the way you the way you get through difficult things is by um, collaborating with other people, other like-minded people. And so I think it's an enormous human loss. And, you know, the sort of, um, all the sort of, you know, so as the coddling of identity. You know, identity is important. It's interesting. It's good. It's all kinds of things. But the sort of coddling of identity, whereby you can't even criticize another person yeah. in any way. Like, it's just not human, right? Or, or the idea that you should judge the person next to you yeah. in a military context, in a civilian context, by you know by their the color of their skin right. or by their identity category, right. whatever it is, uh, rather than by what's in their heart and what's right. in their soul and what they bring to a team and the degree to which they're empathetic and you know I mean it's just it's kind of a ludicrous proposition in my view and and contrasts starkly with my experience in the military. But um, I'd like to talk to you then about about you know the what you've seen as these really formative experiences uh, in, in, in the military and where you build that cohesion and what you've witnessed as, as soldiers leave the army, for example, and then rejoin civilian society. Yeah. I think what you did in, in the book Tribe is phenomenal in, in drawing out that contrast and what it tells us about you know, the, the nature of combat and the cohesion of units, but also what it tells us about our society and Maybe Sebastian talk a little bit about how, you know, we're more connected to each other than ever electronically, yeah. and we seem more disconnected from each other than ever psychologically yeah. and emotionally. You know. Yeah. Well, I would, I'll just start there. Obviously, electronic communication does not, in fact, make people experience closeness. There is some kind of connection, right? There is right. an exchange of ideas. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're in person today. So yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it's obvious. Like, I mean, mental health declined during COVID because everyone was connected electronically. I mean. That, that obviously it's not the same thing. Obviously, you, there's, there's a human loss there. 
and the lie that's been foisted on us that electronic communication is basically just the new way and it's just the same as in person. Um, there are very powerful, wealthy companies making enormous amounts of money off that lie. And the suicide rate, the depression rate in young people, particularly young women, is through the roof, right? I mean, th 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 that, that money is being paid for with real life, real human lives because of that lie, right? Um, so what I would say, like you asked about what I sort of learned in combat about this stuff. So for two, things that two things that come to mind. One of them was a young man, Brendan, his name was, who I'm still very good friends with. He said, you know, there's guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other, but we would all die for each other. If you can figure out how to be part of a group where your commitment to everyone else is not based in your, on your feelings for them individually, but on a, on a shared valuing of what the group represents, right. you'll be doing well. And it, it may be a neighborhood watch group, right? It may be whatever. I mean, whatever it is, it does not matter. And we live in a more or less safe society. The group you find will probably, the stakes will not be as high, undoubtedly, as it was in combat. Don't worry about it. You just, you need to be, need to be part of something where the, its value is uh, uh, transcends all your individual concerns, right? Absolutely. And then the other thing, that amazing thing that I overheard, we were coming back from a really intense combat, um, like 24-hour like combat mission, and um, uh, we were coming up this last, we were exposed to gunfire, we were coming up this last ridgeline, and we were in a bad, very, very vulnerable position, right? We had to get to the top of this ridge, until we got there, not a good situation. And one guy started falling out. You know, these guys are carrying, oh, yeah. you know, 80 pounds of ammo and whatever. Like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, 110 pounds. Yeah, you yeah know, exactly. Rucksack, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was thinking, I'm just glad it's not me falling out because I would hate to slow down a platoon. You know, like, God, the one thing you just do not want to do as an embedded journalist is impair their operation in any way whatsoever because someone could get killed. Right. Right? right. So it was another soldier who was falling out, just having a bad day. And um, his staff sergeant came up to him and said, uh, you don't have the right to be smoked. Yeah. You don't even have the right to be tired. <laughs> and civilians are like, what do you mean the right to be tired? It's a physical state. It has nothing to do with... Hey, man. Not true, yeah. right? Yeah. The human mind can overcome an awful lot of things. And until you physically collapse, I don't want to hear about it. There's always something less than the tank, man. And, you know, and, and uh, that's why... The word sergeant, I think, is one of the most beautiful words in the English language. <laughs> yeah. You got that staff sergeant said, okay, think yeah. a little deeper. Yeah. And and then and then to try to, you know, to not let your 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 you know your your fellow uh, words down is I think uh immensely important. You know, what one of the things I'm worried about these days is at least reports of of a re reduction in standards, right? Physical standards, other right. standards, with this idea that uh that that really you need diversity is defined as like anybody who wants just gets in, you know, to the to the warrior club, you know, when in fact, um, you know, I, I think it's immensely important to maintain those standards and to right. not judge people by any kind of like identity category, right. but judge them by their courage, their toughness, right. their sense of honor, their willingness yeah. to sacrifice, as we're talking about. Uh, yeah. Do you see this kind of across society in general, is this tension between you know, kind of a DEI orthodoxy. Right. We're all for equality of opportunity, right? right? We're all for diversity. We want our armed forces to reflect our society, but but I, I'm concerned that there's a drive to lower standards, right? Even in an area where the, the stakes are life and death, right? I mean, you know, I think there. I mean, there is obviously a moral good, a social good in promoting open access, diverse, uh, open access, diverse, diverse access to. Um, the workplace in, in all forms. I mean, I, I totally get it. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of um, jobs within the U.S. military who don't that don't require you to be able to do 30 pull-ups. Like, I mean, come on. Like, let's be real. And but I think it's, you have to be very careful where the stakes are life and death. Like with the fire department, for example, urban fire department, sure. for example, or carrying a hard 10-pound pack at 14,000 feet. Yeah, exa exactly. So it, you know, there should be um, if you really want to be like gender blind, identity blind. You actually will not change the standards. Yeah. You will say this is what the job requires. Absolutely. Like if you don't have good eyesight, you can't be a pilot. I'm sorry. That has nothing to do with being right. discriminating against people with their impaired eyesight. It's just that's what the job requires. But likewise, like there are physical standards for the sort of combat infantry roles. Yeah. And for the fire if the fire department, you have to be able to carry an adult down twenty flights of stairs right. over your shoulder with all your gear. Right. Like some women do that, of course they can. Right. They're yeah. amazing. They, the, a woman just set the 
the world record for five for five thousand meters at fourteen minutes. The lady was running four thirty miles, right? Yeah, of course. We've had women graduates of ranger school. Yeah, exactly. Without, exactly. without lowering right. the standards. Yeah. But you, but if you lower the standards, what you're doing is endangering everybody, and you're unconsciously signaling, mm -hmm. look, this sex is typically can do this. This sex typically can't. So, I mean, you're actually in an unfortunate way typifying typecasting women in a weird way by lowering the standards is actually a kind right. of, um, there's a kind of hidden insult in that and a hidden disrespect. Personally, my, what I would say is that all, all jobs in the military and in society basically are honorable and needed and worthy. And thank you for your service to, uh, to everybody that's keeping this great nation going, Absolutely. right? But when you, there's a very, very small subset of jobs that requ require physical strength and you have to be able to demonstrate that you can do it. And that's why they wouldn't allow me in Ranger, like yeah. in, a, in a Ranger group, right? Like, I mean, I, I'm 61 years old. I'm yeah. something that's not happening, right? <laughs> it's not because they're ageist. Yeah. It's because they're realists. Yeah, right, right. It, it, exactly. And, 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 you know, I think the whole, it's the whole team's important, obviously, yeah. you know, from, you know, from cyber to, you know, to, to logistics, to right. signal, to every, I mean, right. everything. Like the army doesn't operate, you know, just based on infantry platoons, but in infantry platoon or, right. you know, in other uh, close combat specialties, there are the physical standards, you know, are, are, are very, are very right. important. You know, I, I wanted to also talk with you about, uh, you know, about reintegration into society, right? You have this, you have this uh, family that's very cohesive, and then you follow soldiers as you come, as you come back into, 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 into society. Uh, with you know, with the all the electronic connections and everything, and you know, I love I love the book uh, Freedom as well. You know, where you went on a hell of a long walk. Yeah. You know, with three friends. Yeah. And uh, and you walked the railroad tracks, and you said at one point, you know, you talked about, which I was a little bit skeptical of. You know, that you, that you rediscover the solidarity that is at the core of what it means to be human. But but you said that you did it by digging yourself into the side of a riverbank. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, and, and, and I, I, I'm teasing you a little bit, yeah. but I mean, I think I think it was just a wonderful book about how getting away, you know, from from all of the noise, yeah. you know, all of the hectic parts of, of life with people who you trust and respect, uh, can help you rediscover the kind of, you know, intimate, you know, human relationships yeah. uh, that so many people seem to be missing. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the railroad lines, and officially I can't recommend doing this, uh, is that they're, they're these swaths of no man's land, and it's illegal, yeah, right? It's right. illegal to be out there, it's trespassing, and it's a weird environment. It's not the wilderness, and it's not society, it's this weird gray area. And I was in a group with three other men and a dog, and we were really marginal, and we walked through 15 degree temperatures in the middle of the winter, 100 degree temperatures in the middle of the summer, over the course of a year, we walked from DC to Philly to Pittsburgh along the railroad lines, and the <laughs> cops were looking for us. There was like all kinds of weirdness, right? And yeah, I remember like people offering you meals or yeah. warning you of thunderstorms yeah. that are coming, oh, yeah. you know, because you're encountering like little fringes of society. Yeah, no, but exactly. you're kind of on your own. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And and um, yeah, we encountered a guy who had a you know put a revolver in his back pocket and backed up and sort of watched us. You know, I mean, there was all kinds of freakiness out there, right? So. The, but the point was, we were enormously free from society, right? Like, as I say in the book, every night we were the only people who knew where we were. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and in the woods and whatever. We were the only people who knew where we were. We were utterly unaccountable to anyone, right? <laughs> enormous freedom. But we did not have freedom from each other because we all needed each other to make this work on a physical level. We needed to make a fire. We needed to get water. We needed to post, you know, have to kind of keep kind of guard sometimes. Yeah. And so this this ancient human trade-off, like... I can't survive without the group. I own, so I owe my life to the group, but I don't want to be part of a group that's going to be oppressive to me. It has to be a reciprocal agreement, right? And, and so that, that, that balance is the one that people are constantly looking for. How, how do I be part of a group that's big and strong enough to protect me, but will not oppress me? Right, right. Yeah. That's the trick. Well, and that's, that's the story of our revolution. It's the story yeah, exactly. that you tell and. And, and we've often had to fight for freedom. I love the one-word titles of, of uh, you know, of your chapters, right? Run, fight, think, you know, and and um, and you know, it's in the run part where you're, you're digging in the side of the bank, right? And and you you talk about how uh, you're bound together by the simplicity of the situation you're in, 
the hardship of the situation and proximity to death, right? And, yeah. and I think this relates to maybe the discussion we've been having about safetyism and how yeah. important it is, I mean, at times yeah. to, you know, to, to have to fight to survive, to be, to go through hardships. And, yeah. and the, but in, in the fight chapter, you know, you, you talk about, um, about how important it is to fight for freedom. And could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, even the etymology of the word freedom goes back yeah. to fighting. And then you tell this great story about the Montenegrins, you know, in the, yeah. in the late 19th, 1600s, uh, 1600s, yeah. uh, you know, fighting off the Ottoman Empire, yeah. you know, and, and I think about the analogies to Ukraine today, yeah. where we see incredible valor on the part of the Ukrainians who are fighting for their freedom. Yeah. You know? And so could you talk about the theme of freedom and, and, uh, and, and especially this idea that you have to fight for it? Yeah, I mean, throughout history, human history, um, humans, people have had to defend themselves against larger groups that would enslave them or kill them, right? And that's been going on for a very long time. And if you want to, if you want to remain free and have your families and community remain free, you have to figure out how to defend yourselves. And that's been true in the human drama. That's been true for hundreds of thousands of years. And, um, and if you can't do that, you will not be free, right? History is filled with examples of sort of dominant groups that just rode roughshod over everyone else, killed all the men, enslaved the women, you know, whatever, like awful, awful, awful yeah. stuff. And um, the Montenegrins, outnumbered 12 to 1 uh, by the Ottomans, managed to defend themselves and defend their dignity and their freedom. And the, the fact that, in, that humans, either individually or in groups, can defeat a larger foe, totally unique to humans, and the and the uh, among mammals, uh, and it is the 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 thing that allows us freedom. But you to be able to do that, you have to be committed to the group. Yeah. Right. The Montenegrins themselves would not have defeated the Ottomans if every individual Montenegrin fighter was like, "Well, I'm willing to fight, but I'm not willing to die." Right. right. I'm not not right. Right. Like absolute commitment. And so when you look at the Ukrainians. Uh, they don't have an option, right? They have to it's either fight and defend their country or be subjugated by a pretty predatory regional power, world right. power. The Russian soldiers, they're not fighting for their, 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 the safety of their families, for their freedom, for their dignity, for their democracy. I'm guessing it's quite hard for them to articulate why they're fighting, other than right. they got drafted, they need a paycheck, they were in prison, and now they've got offered deals, a very prosaic Absolutely. motivations, right? Yeah. And you can see it on the battlefield. I mean, the, the, the Russians have a huge numerical uh, uh, advantage, and yet, you know, by, by, any, by any sort of tactical measure, they're, 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 they're losing. Right. They're losing because they're, they have a huge advantage and they're not winning. And all the, all the smaller power has to do, they don't have to win, right? They have to not lose long enough for the great power to just get sick of the amount of effort and blood and treasure that they are spending on this project and pull out. Like the Taliban did not defeat the United States, yeah. right? We lasted 20 years. We decided it's no longer in our interest and we left. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I'm really sick about it. I know you are too. I, I feel like you know, we defeated ourselves, right? We had a series of fundamentally flawed strategies and approaches to the war that were inconsistent. Uh, we never really put into place a sustained yep. long-term approach to the war. Uh, and it was that short-term approach, I think, that lengthened the war, actually. And oh, made, totally. it, made it, it made it more yep. difficult, you know. And you mentioned in that chapter, too, I forget what chapter, I think it's in the fight chapter, you talk about winning, right? And and you talk about how a boxer, you know, um, you know when you get in the ring, uh, you're in it to win. And boxers, even before a match, I like think you use a statistic where, those who allow themselves to smile instead of have kind of a you know a, a, a stern and determined countenance yeah. lose statistically because right? their yeah. lives not in the game to win. And you know, Sebastian, this phrase drives me crazy. Responsible end when they were talking about Afghanistan. Yeah. We want to bring this, and I, and I used to box. I never got in the ring and said, you know, <laughs> I just want to bring this fight to a responsible end because you know you're going to get your ass kicked. In yeah. You know, we talked about this with Richard McCall uh, of the All Blacks in the last episode. But can you maybe share your views on war and 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 a determination to win? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think when someone's facing an existential threat, um, 
the determination to win is rooted in survival. And so it, it you know, you don't have the right to be smoked. We don't have the right to be scared. Right. Like survival's on the line, not just your survival, but the survival of people that are very, very vulnerable. Right. Right. The children, the civilians in your community, the children. I think when you have an expeditionary war 8,000 miles away, it's harder, just on a visceral human level, to sort of feel that. Like, I mean, if you're an American soldier fighting in Baghdad, like, I can imagine the soldier thinking, wait a minute, what's this have to do with my family? Like, my family's fine. They're, yeah. that, that, well, in human terms, I mean, no, there's there's a geostrategic logic to it that I actually didn't agree with, but yeah. I, there is, there was one, right? But for the soldier, like, if you are, and they've see, they've shown this in Israel, um, during the Yom Kippur War, Israeli soldiers were literally fighting on the sort of the outskirts of their own towns. Sure, yeah. Right? Um, that's a very different kind of motivation, even from incursions into Lebanon. And the trauma rates from incursions into Lebanon were higher because the logic of having to fight was different from fighting on your, on your hometown against an invasion from like three neighboring countries. You know, I think we're getting at almost like the true test of strategy, I think is, can you explain to soldiers in an infantry platoon how the risks they're gonna take on a mission, how the sacrifices they may be called on to make are contributing to an outcome Right. Worthy of those risks and sacrifices. Right. And uh, our regiment had the, you know, the good fortune of having what we needed to accomplish the mission in a portion of Iraq in 2005 to 2006, right. where we uh, defeated Al-Qaeda. We saw life return to our area. And when we came back for the debriefings, uh, there was a statistical anomaly, you know, that, that our, our post-traumatic stress levels were like way down. And, and I think it really had to do with... You know, the, the, the change we had seen, that we'd achieved that worthy outcome. And we'd also made it a point, you know, that I briefed every flight that went home with a video of what we had achieved. Wow. And two weeks before wow. we came back, I took my end of tour leave, uh, my mid tour leave at the end of, of the end of the tour and had briefed all their families on what they had achieved. Amazing. And I really think that that is one of the most important bulwarks against post-traumatic trauma, you know, and, and or, or any disorders associated with post-traumatic stress is to understand that you've been part of that worthy endeavor. And and I, I, I mean, I wonder if you might say a few words to our, to our Afghan veterans, because I, I believe that that was a noble endeavor. I believe that they rescued the Afghan people from the hell of Taliban rule from 96 to 2001. Yeah. They removed the Taliban sponsorship of Al-Qaeda, who committed the largest mass murder attacks yeah. uh, in history on 9-11. Um, they showed the Afghans a, a, a path that they, they could take alternatively. I don't believe in you know a, a terrorist organization like the Taliban wins in the long term, right? And and I think that we've set conditions for, you know, a, a return of some kind of form of governance in in uh, right. in Afghanistan that is not the Taliban. But what what do you say to the veterans of the Afghan War who I know are 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 struggling now with yep. the sacrifices that they and their fellow soldiers have made, right? Uh, and this and this self defeat. I think you're, it's a right. self defeat, yeah, and a surrender essentially. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated thing. You know, I think in sort of human terms, I think one of the things that is probably very, very um, troubling to many veterans is that they left, they worked closely with Afghan interpreters and all kinds of um, uh, Afghan nationals who then got stuck there. Many of them got killed. And I think there was a sense of betrayal of our allies and our, our Afghan brothers, as it were, yeah. that was just mortifying to people that have been in combat with, with these people. And I think on some level, American soldiers sort of knew, well, we're not going to be in Afghanistan forever, right? I mean, like, we're not forever, forever. Like, at some point, we're going to pull out. Um, I think w what was sort of mortifying is that the, um, the you know, successive administrations, uh, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, in, in my opinion, all fumbled the sort of, like, broader policies in that country. And you know, one of them, one of the biggest ones, the biggest one I think was addressing corruption. Yeah. Um, the, the, the huge amounts of money that we pumped into that country were virtually unmonitored. The Afghans were virtually unaccountable for the money that we were giving them to do things with. Right. And it just supercharged corruption and corruption was the main driver that got Afghans to allow the Taliban in for the first place. The Taliban promised to clean up corruption. In 96, I was there yeah. and they let him in to clean up corruption. and. We left that underdressed. And so I think as long as we were not ignoring that piece of the puzzle, no amount of, you know, you know, efforts by our amazing military was going to 
do anything except keep the floodwaters at bay till we pulled out. And had we really been determined to change that society, which we had the power to do. Yeah. Um, Bush wasn't interested. Obama wasn't interested. No one was interested. I'm, I happen to be a Democrat. But in that sense, the Democratic presidents and the Republican president, all of them completely failed on that level. And I think that's what led to the, yeah. the disaster. Yeah. Yeah, war is a contest of wills, and we lost our own will, I think, to see it through. And you're right, obviously, about the corruption and the weakness of the state and yeah. security forces that resulted from that. But, um, hey, I, I'd like to end on a bit of a higher note here, right? We've talked about a lot of the problems in our society today. Uh, you know, maybe the lack of confidence in our common identity as, as, as Americans. Our American tribe seems to be quite fragmented. Yeah. Uh, lack of confidence maybe even in our democratic processes and institutions. Um, a, a curriculum, I think, in, in much of the academy, in, in secondary schools even, that, that teach young people that their country might not even be worth defending. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about various post-colonial and, and, and critical and post-modernist theories that, are, that have uh, uh, become, um, have infected, I think, a lot of the curricula uh, in the humanities. Um, and, and, you know, I think just a, a sense that we've lost our agency. You know, this yeah. tendency to put structural or institutional in front of every problem Right. Uh, as if that we don't right. have the ability to work together to build a better future. Yeah. So, you know, based on your extraordinary experience uh, and training and observing of human nature, our society, uh, of units in combat, what can we do um, yeah. to improve our country? So, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on there. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sort of flashing on um, our Afghan ally, uh, Ghani, President Ghani of Afghanistan, leaving, fleeing that country, leaving vulnerable Afghans behind with two satchels full of cash, $40 million worth of cash, something like that. Clearly a completely corrupt man, right? And, and you know, I think Americans look at their own political leaders, and it's not quite as crass as that. It's not a helicopter filled with $40 million, but I think they see a lot of self-dealing by politicians, by powerful people in this country, Self-dealing that leaves the common man, the common woman behind. And yeah, and, and um, that very popular song, Rich Men, Northern Richmond, I think speaks to this idea that, look, the powerful and the elite on both sides of the aisle are, are serving themselves at our expense. And so would, if you were an Afghan, would you fight for Ghani as his helicopter was lifting off with $40 million in cash? No, he wouldn't. Why would you? It'd be crazy, right? Well, likewise, for Americans, like, would you, you know, would you, would you fight for these people? They're enriching themselves by pretending to lead the country. I think the divisions in this country were created and exploited by political leaders. Yeah. Right. I think Americans, you know, with some exceptions, but I think basic Americans want to sort of be unified, and they're being told that looking for unity is um, uh, foolish. Right. It, that it, you know, it's almost it's like it's almost unpatriotic to think that the other side is actually moral and well-intentioned and uh, has the good of the nation foremost in their mind as well. It's almost thought of as unpatriotic to think that about the other political party. And um, I blame that squarely on the politicians. Um, not all of them, but just enough that, so what can we do, right? Like other than throw the bastards out. Like what? Well, we do, we do have agency where we can vote. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, three things you can do to make to feel like you're part of this great nation, right? On an individual level, the nation doesn't need you. You're just a tiny person. Like what? You need to give blood. I survived a medical emergency a few years ago. Uh, abdominal hemorrhage, um, killer, killer uh, situation. I survived because I got 10 units of blood from people that donated their blood, right? You have to, you have to give blood because one day you will be me in the emergency, uh, in the ER with doctors trying to save your life. That will be all of us eventually. Uh, you need to vote. The nation needs you to vote, right? If you don't vote, you are giving up on the entire idea of democracy. It's one of the most powerful, ennobling ideas ever created by people, right? Human dignity is, at the, dignity is the core of that idea. You have to vote. And finally, serve on jury duty. Don't try to get out of it. Uh, the jury is the only thing keeping one person, one sheriff, one prosecutor, one president, one what have you, from, from deciding the fate of another person. It's jury duty that keeps us ultimately from tyranny and oppression, and you have to be part of it. Or you lose the right, you really should lose the right to have a jury judge you if you are ever unfairly accused of, or fairly accused of a crime. 
So you do those three things, you will feel like you're part of this amazing place. And then finally, I would say as on a policy level, I think ma mandatory national service would be an amazing thing. Yeah. for this country. I don't mean military service. Right. I mean mandatory national service for 18 months or whatever when you're a young person and mil with a military option, great, no problem, but um, you should be able to serve your country by teaching school children and providing daycare in, in stressed uh, urban neighborhoods and whatever, wherever the need, wherever the need's greatest, we have these amazing young people who can fill those needs. You do a great thing, you would mix the, you would, you would, you would give people an experience of what a what a um, varied country this is, mm -hmm. right? Rich, poor, white, black, religious, not religious, the whole gay, straight, I don't care. We're all Americans, right? You would you would put people in these in these in the context of the of the great variation of this of this democratic nation. And it would also um, make them feel like they're part of something greater than themselves. Yeah. And that leads to what feels like a meaningful life. You know, I, and, and for our, our younger viewers, you know, I would encourage you to join our military. There have been efforts, you know, on part of, yeah. I think, political fringes and both parties to try to politicize the military. I think the military has been resistant to that. Yeah. The military is not woke. You know, it's yeah. not extremist. Uh, it is a place where you can get a lot of responsibility, yeah. overcome challenges at a very young age, and then go on to serve in other capacities. You have to do like 34 years. You can do, yeah. you know, just do a few years and you've seen so many veterans go on, like we're today here at a Veterans Fellows Program at, at the Hoover Institution, right. with veterans who are serving again in another capacity, doing something positive for yeah. their for their communities. So, um, you know, I think there are friends, and you, and you, I, I would put you in the ranks of a servant of the nation because what you've done is you explain to the American people the experiences of their of their sons and daughters when they went to fight in their name. And I can't think of of a more noble service to have done, and and um, I can't tell you what a big fan I am, you know, and what a privilege it's been to be with you. And I'd love to give you the, the last word to our to our audience. Thank you so much. Um, my father came here from Europe as fascists were overrunning Europe and trying to overrun the world, and he came here. He told me he came here and he stayed here because he knew fascism never would follow him to this country that this country would always remain free and would fight for the freedom of others. And in my lifetime, that has been true. I expect it will always be true. It makes America, for all of its flaws and failings, right? And we can talk about those, it's an important conversation. It makes it one of the most noble endeavors in the history of humanity. I'm incredibly proud to be part of it. I never had to serve in the military, never chose to serve, but I, I, I feel like I, I, I served in other ways that wound up being helpful and important to people and, and makes me incredibly proud. So thank you for having me on. Sebastian Yoder, thank you for helping us learn how we can build a better future yeah. for generations to come. Thank you. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.